0: You're listening to the Men's Podcast, and this is the story of the Beast of Birkenshaw. First off, I want to thank you, listeners, for sticking with me through the audio problems that we had with our last episode. Hopefully there won't be a repeat of that again, but if I'm honest, I still am not sure where that feedback came from. This week is going to be a little bit different for menswear, as the case we're looking at will be covered in a three-part series. This first episode will be followed by two more later this week, so look out for them. Today, we look at a series of murders that happened over a two-year span in the late 1950s just outside of Glasgow, and the man who committed these horrid acts, Peter Manuel, who later became known as the Beast of Birkenshaw. Peter Manuel's family came from the Lanarkshire area of Scotland. It was an area of heavy industry and was dominated by the nearby coal mines. Manuel's father and grandfather both spent their days down the mines. His parents, Samuel and Bridget, were married quickly and quietly when Peter's mother became pregnant with their first child. Before his older brother, James, was born, his father left and went to the United States. He was joined by Bridget when she had given birth, leaving James behind with his grandmother. His father, Samuel, worked first in New York and then, after the crash of 1929, in Detroit. Peter was born while the two were living and working in New York. But things didn't work out as planned for the manuals, and in 1932, the three of them moved back to Lanarkshire, near Motherwell. Not only was Peter in a new country at the age of five, he was also no longer the only child in the family. He met his brother James for the first time. In 1937, the family had another child, a girl called Teresa. They moved to Coventry, the centre of British car manufacturing. But it wasn't long before Coventry was bombed out during the war and the family moved back to Motherwell. Manuel's school career was marked with poor behaviour and petty crimes. He stole from the offertory rocks in the church next to his school when he was 11, and continued thefts saw him before the courts numerous times. His older brother James had also been in trouble and had been sent to an approved school. Approved schools were basically residential institutions for young offenders. His school reports describe a boy who is deceitful and doesn't care about the consequences of his poor behavior, which mainly involves theft. He was responsible for leading younger boys astray. Eventually, he too ended up committed by the courts to an approved school. He was sent to St. William's Approved School in Yorkshire, which was run by the Catholic Order of the De La Salle Brothers. The school, like many others now, has come under scrutiny for its sexual abuse scandals. Manuel became a persistent runaway from the school and would commit crime after crime until he was found and returned, though it was noted that while he was at school, he was very well behaved. His crimes became increasingly violent, however. At 14, he burgled a house just yards from the approved school. When the woman of the house came upon him, he was carrying an axe. He took her handbag, and she subsequently had a nervous breakdown the next year he again absconded and broke into a number of homes during one of these burglaries he struck a woman who was asleep in bed with a hammer she ended up with hemorrhage and a concussion and was kept for a number of days in hospital manuel couldn't give a reason for this violence but pled guilty to the assault 1942 saw manuel commit a string of burglaries and ratcheted up the amount of time he would have to stay in the approved school the year after saw an increase in his violent tendencies when he attacked the wife of one of the school staff members. He hit her around the head with a heavy stick and then dragged her 140 yards into the nearby wood, where he attempted, but thankfully failed, to rape her. After this incident, he was sent to the Borstal at Hollisley Bay in Suffolk. Interestingly, this is the institution that Brendan Behan writes about in his book, Borstal Boy. It was a farm borstal, and the boy inmates would work the farm and maintain its buildings. Though Manuel could sometimes be charming, he was described as an inveterate liar. He had an excellent memory, and could remember the lies he told, or weave the truth into his lies to try and make them more believable. He was finally released from the borstal and approved school system in 1945. The war was not yet finished, though he did not serve for either the US or Britain. He instead went to Blackpool, where he worked for a number of months at the amusements. After a stint at Blackpool Pier, he returned to live with his parents, who had been rehoused in a new estate called View Park. They now had running water, gas, and electricity. No doubt his parents hoped that he would settle down and take up a job, but shortly after his move, Peter resumed his life of crime. He also seemed to want to set himself apart from those around him, not only by refusing to get and keep a regular job, but also by cultivating a fake American accent and by immersing himself in gangster culture through books and films. He seemed to make the decision that it was much easier and far more profitable to continue burglarizing his neighbors than keeping up the work that he had managed to get as a laborer. His crimes were committed close to home and close together in time, so that soon there was a spree of break-ins in his area. In the period immediately following the end of the war, where rationing was still in full play, It was easy enough for Peter to dispose of the items like jewellery and alcohol on the black market and pocket the small amount of cash he might have found. Even easier to dispose of would be the ration books that allowed the bearer of the coupon to purchase clothing, petrol or food items. Despite the fact that Peter's activities would keep him out at night and resulted in him having unexplained amounts of cash, given that he was not really holding down a job, his family turned a blind eye and made up excuses and lied for him. This behaviour continued until spring 1947, when he was finally caught by the police. Peter had set himself up in the attic space of a bungalow, whose owners were on holiday. After burglaring the place, he hid himself up there and waited while the police investigated the burglary. Just as he had decided that the coast was clear, one of the officers returned and found him. Manuel tried to say that he had just been acting as a lookout and that there was another person inside, But this proved false and Manuel was arrested for the burglary of the house. Manuel had ransacked the house and scattered food about the place. When he was arrested, he was immaculately presented. Breaking and entering was not Manuel's only crime in 1946. There was also a series of sexually motivated attacks that spring in the area. The first was on the 3rd of March. A young mother, walking with her 3-year-old, was attacked. The perpetrator wrestled her to the ground, but she fought back hard and yelled and screamed. He ran off, but when she continued to scream, he came back and gave her another few kicks to try and shut her up. The police officer who investigated found a cap that had been reduced in size by a number of stitches, and a few well-oiled strands of dark hair. He immediately suspected Manuel, who was nowhere to be found. A few days later, on the 7th of March, a nurse was attacked as she walked home from her shift. The man covered her mouth and punched her to try and get her to the ground. She did manage to scream out, however, and got the attention of a passing motorcyclist and another passerby. The description of the man who had grabbed her bore a striking resemblance to Peter Manuel. On the 8th of March, another woman was grabbed while she was walking home. This time she was forced to an isolated area near a railway bridge and was raped. The police put the incidents together and arrested Manuel for the attacks. The first two women identified Manuel, but the woman who had been raped could not identify him. There was other evidence that put Manuel at the scene of the attack, though, including fibres, footprints, and items of clothing with semen stains. So he was charged and convicted of rape in June of 1946, and while he was in prison, he was charged and convicted with 15 counts of burglary. Manuel appealed his conviction for rape. "'and seemed incandescent with rage about the physical evidence that had convicted him. "'For the first time, he claimed that he had been framed by the police. "'He was sentenced to eight years and sent to Peterhead, "'one of the most notorious prisons in Britain. "'His behaviour while in prison followed a pattern. "'He would misbehave and be punished and then complain bitterly about it "'by letter to his parents or to the prison authorities or both.' In October 1951, as his time in prison was coming to an end, his behavior had not improved, and it was decided that he needed to see a psychiatrist. He told the psychiatrist that his outbursts were due to him wanting to learn a trade while in prison, but the governor had decided he would not allow this. The psychiatrist didn't buy this, though, and stated that he was, quote, an aggressive psychopath, end quote, and that there was nothing to be done for him. Manuel hated the idea that he was being examined in this way, and always resisted the idea that he might be mentally abnormal. We'll see this again later, that he refuses to admit that there might be something wrong with him, even when it's to his detriment. Despite the psychiatrist's warning, in October 1951, Peter Manuel was released back into the care of his family, who were now living in Birkenshaw. His father Samuel was a local counsellor, his mother was highly involved in the local Catholic church, and his sister Teresa was studying to be a nurse. One of his first actions upon being released was to ask the local police to look into his framing. He had studied law quite extensively in prison in order to try and prove that he had been set up, and to get the better of the police force that he thought was out to get him. Manuel even claimed to have knowledge of crimes committed by others and confessed by them to him while in jail, in order to use as leverage to get his name cleared, and place the blame for the rape squarely on someone else's shoulders. Over the next number of months, his father helped him get a number of menial jobs, which he managed to lose one after the other. First, he worked with the gas company, then the council emptying bins, and then with freight trains. He began to hang around a pub that was known for being the haunt of gangs and the criminal element. He chewed gum and used his fake American drawl. At one point, he approached the American embassy and said that he had important information for them. He was flown to an airbase near London and was interviewed by an FBI officer, where it became quickly apparent that he had no information at all, but Manuel had gotten a good day out out of it and had sated his need for attention. He told tales about being involved in gold heists and other major crimes. He was so known for these tall tales that no one, not even the police, believed what he said anymore. In autumn 1954, Manuel began seeing Miss Anne O'Hara. The relationship was chaste, by all accounts, and was proceeding normally, until Anna received a letter stating that Manuel was not all he seemed. He was, in fact, the son of an American gangster who had been given the electric chair and was also a secret agent who had been spying on Russia. Manuel's only response to the letter was that he knew who had written it, which was probably true as he had likely written it himself. Despite this, the two got engaged, but the engagement was broken in May of 1955. On Saturday, July 30th, 1955, at around 11.30 at night, Mary McLaughlin was walking home after a dance. She passed metres away from the manual house. She was grabbed from behind and told not to scream, but she managed to let out a yell anyway. Those nearby, including police officers, heard her cry for help and began to look around, but she was dragged into a nearby field and forced to lie still until those nearby had moved on. The man who grabbed her groped her and kissed her. She told him that she had two children, though in reality she did not, in the hopes that this would make him stop. His mood seemed to change then. He told her a story about how he had been due to marry his girlfriend that weekend, He said that he had thought about killing himself, but that he had seen her, and she looked like his ex-fiancée, so he decided to attack her instead. She realized that she actually knew her attacker, as they often got the same bus in the morning. But she lied, and she said that she didn't recognize him, and she gave him a false name. Eventually, Manuel let her go home, and she went to the police to report the attack. On the Monday morning, Miss McLaughlin was able to identify Manuel's father, and Peter was arrested. They found blood on Peter's clothing and found the knife that he had discarded. Peter was remanded in custody. Manuel decided that he would defend himself at the trial for the attack on Mary McLaughlin. In doing so, he was given much more leeway than a lawyer would have when it came to making his case and cross-examining witnesses. It also meant that he didn't have to take the stand or to swear that he would tell the truth. Manuel told the jury that he and Miss McLaughlin had been courting and had had an argument that day. He said that he had in fact hit her but then they had made up and gone walking in the nearby field she had cut herself on some barbed wire and he had lost his knife chasing a dog away from the train tracks the jury found that the charges were not proven in scotland there are three verdicts that can be returned in criminal cases guilty not guilty and not proven guilty verdicts obviously lead to a conviction of the crime that the person is charged with Not guilty is also straightforward enough. It's an outright acquittal. Not proven lies somewhere in between, but it's still an acquittal. Essentially, the judge or jury is saying that they don't think the person is necessarily innocent of the crime, but that there's not enough evidence to convict them of it. So that's what happened to Manuel with the attack on Mary McLaughlin. The jury felt that there was not enough actual evidence to convict him, but didn't feel that he was quite innocent of the assault. This not proven result gave Manuel a sense of confidence about his knowledge of the law and his ability to act for himself in the courtroom. He became cocky about his victory and would rely on this cockiness to his detriment later. Anne Neelands was a pretty, athletic 17-year-old girl who worked in a clothes factory and lived in a converted stables at the Calderwood Estate, one of the growing suburbs of Glasgow. On Friday the 30th of December, she had been to a dance with her sister Alice, where she had met a soldier on leave named Andrew. She and Andrew had made plans to meet at the bus stop the next day, but Andrew had drunk so much that he had forgotten about their plans. Anne was left standing in the cold at the bus stop waiting on him. When he hadn't turned up after waiting for some time, she took the bus into town. She was seen at the bus stop by the bus driver on her way home, but that was the last time she was seen by anyone. When she didn't arrive home that night, her parents assumed that she had stayed out at a friend's house. It wasn't until she failed to arrive home the next day that the worry really and truly began to sink in. The police were informed. Later that day, a man was walking across a local golf course and as he entered a stand of pine trees, he saw the body of a woman. It looked as if she had been dragged there because her skirt was rucked up beneath her and the collar of her jacket was pulled up around her neck. As he got closer, he saw the damage to her head and came to the conclusion that she was dead. He rushed off to tell nearby workmen what he had found. Initially, the labourers dismissed him, thinking that this was some sick joke but some went to investigate when the man went off to call the police. The police arrived on scene quickly, and a search of the area revealed evidence of what had become of the young woman. Her shoes were found separately, one stuck into the side of a wide ditch, the other some 70 feet away from her body. She had run to try and escape her attacker, over fields, through ditches, and over barbed wire fences. Near the body there was a pool of blood with fragments of bone, hair, and tissue left from the attack. She had fought back, there were marks and scrapes on her hands and arms. It didn't appear as if she'd been raped, but her underwear was missing. She had sustained catastrophic injuries to her head. There had been repeated violent blows which caved in part of her skull. Every available police officer was put on the case, and Andrew Mernon was located and interviewed. Many other young men in the area were also interviewed, but none were kept for questioning. Door-to-door inquiries were made, and the men working for the gas company were questioned. One in particular came to notice because he had scratches on his face. His name was Peter Manuel. He explained his injuries were the result of a fight that he had gotten into on New Year's Eve in Glasgow. Nothing more came of it. On the 14th of January, the Scottish paper the Daily Express ran a picture of Manuel asking anyone who had seen him in the area to come forward. No one did, and Manuel took this as proof of his denials. Soon, the Anne Neelands case grew cold. On the 12th of September, Mr. and Mrs. Henry Platt and their son Joffrey left their home in Bothwell, a small town southeast of Glasgow, for a holiday in the Lake District. Three days later, the police received a call about a break-in in the house. There were a number of items missing, and food had been scattered around the house. Later that week, on the 17th of September... Helen Collison arrived at the Watt House, which was situated in Burnside, a middle-class suburb southeast of Glasgow. Mr. Watt was a baker, but was away for the weekend on a fishing and hunting retreat, and was staying at a hotel owned by his friends, the Leeches. That left his wife, Marion, and his daughter, Vivian, alone in the house. Marion's sister had come to help, as Marion had been disabled through illness. Helen Collison came to assist Marion with jobs around the house that she could not do but when she arrived that morning, the back door wasn't open as it usually would have been. She went around the house knocking on windows until she came to the front door and found that one of the panels of glass had been broken. She saw that the postman was nearby and asked him for help. He reached in through the broken window and opened the door. When they went inside, they found Marion and her sister lying in the master bedroom, both with gunshots to their heads. It looked as if they had been shot while they were asleep. In the second bedroom, they found Vivian. She too had been shot, but the scene was messy. Furniture was knocked about and there were clothes all over the floor. She had put up a fight. The police were called. They arrived only shortly before the press. Meanwhile, William Watt was enjoying his holiday. He had gone out fishing that morning, and the woman at the hotel he was staying at had started to get phone calls asking for him. The calls were suspicious sounding, and Miss Leech hung up. But at around 11.30, she took a phone call from William's brother, who told her about the deaths. She sent a taxi out to find William to tell him that he had an urgent phone call back at the house that he needed to take. When William arrived back at the house, he found Miss Leach in tears and finally understood that something had happened to his wife. He called his brother, who was not in, but his secretary confirmed that his wife, daughter, and sister-in-law had been killed. He called his house and spoke with the police officer, who confirmed what had happened. Watt began to make his way home to Glasgow but after attempting to drive a few miles he and his friends stopped into the police station to explain the situation and they were given a police driver as they were both unable to drive the small winding road safely. Eventually he was also given a full police escort to speed up his journey. He was brought first to the police station and then to the morgue to identify his wife and daughter. His brother-in-law George Brown had also been receiving calls asking for information about his wife and family. He had not been informed of his wife's death until early afternoon that day. As the crime scene investigation began at the Watts house, a neighbor informed the police that there was a broken pane of glass at a house further down the street. The house belonged to two elderly sisters, the Martins. It had been broken into and had been trashed with food from the pantry. All that was missing was a few pieces of jewelry, a small amount of money, and some stockings, which would have been quite effective to stop someone leaving fingerprints behind them. There was huge pressure on the police to find whoever had committed the murders. The police linked the crimes on the same street together and thought that the vandalism with foodstuffs was the modus operandi of Peter Manuel. The police searched his house. He was outraged and said that he would contact his MP, but they found nothing. They searched his house a number of times over the coming weeks, but soon their focus shifted from Manuel to who they thought was a more likely suspect, William Watt. We all know that suspicion usually falls squarely on the partner of the victim, and that's what happened in this case when people reported having seen William Watt and his car in the area of the house the weekend that he was supposedly on his fishing holiday. Two days after the funeral of his wife and daughter, he was arrested and charged with three murders. The police went about looking for further evidence of Watt's involvement in the murder, and conducted what must have been one of the first route tests, where they reconstructed what would have been Watt's journey from the hotel down to Burnside. It took them just about two hours, so it was possible that Watt had left the hotel that night, driven back down to his home in Burnside and returned within the time allowed. Manuel had not been idle while the police were investigating the deaths of the Watt family, or the burglary of the Martin sisters. He had broken into a canteen at a local coal mine, and was also seen fleeing when two suspicious males were spotted lurking outside a home. In that instance, he got away, but the other man had jumped awkwardly over a wall and had broken his foot. That man was Joe Brannan. Manuel defended himself in the colliery case and put forward his mother as an alibi, a common feature of his defenses. He was also supposed to be alibied by another criminal, Charles Tallis, But it's thought that Manuel had shown Talos the two rings he had stolen from the Martin sisters, and Talos had figured from that that he had committed the Watts murders and decided against getting involved. Manuel was livid with him, as his defense failed, and he was sentenced to 18 months in prison. While in prison, Manuel contacted the lawyer acting for William Watt and told him that he wanted to be represented by him, and that he had information about the Watts murders. He outlined to him that he had been contacted by someone who wanted him to help in a burglary and had been shown a gun. He refused to take part, but the robbery went ahead and resulted in the Watts murders. The man who supposedly committed the robbery then got back in touch with him and got Manuel to dispose of the gun. Obviously, this was of great interest to Watts' lawyer. This unnamed man that Manuel was telling tales about had firstly robbed the Martins' house and subsequently gave the two rings he had stolen to Manuel and then entered the Watts' house. Watts' solicitor, Dowdle, knew the best way to get information out of Manuel was to express doubt in his story, and over time he teased out further details from him. Manuel described the interior of the Watt house, told how one of the women had been shot twice in the head, said he knew where the gun was dumped, and if the lawyer could get him bail on his burglary charge, he would retrieve the gun from the banks of the River Clyde. Manuel point-blank refused to tell any of this to the police, and said it would come down to his word against Daddles if the solicitor went to them. Dowdell did attempt to get bail for Manuel, but failed, and Dowdle asked Watt to find out everything he could about his fellow prisoner, Manuel. He also brought everything that Manuel had said to him about the Watt murders to the police, and with Watt's trial looming, the police officer he spoke to promised to do everything he could to look into the suspicious statements. The police searched the Manuel home yet again, and yet again they found nothing. Manuel wrote a letter to the Crown Office complaining about the search, and said that he had gotten his information about the search from his parents rather than the police service, which he apparently thought was poor form. Interestingly, though, he said that his parents told him that the warrant that was served was not only in connection with the Watts murders, but also the attack and murder of Anne Neelands. But what were the police to do? They had a suspect in custody for the Watts murders already. Everything Manuel had said had placed the blame firmly on a shadowy third party. They had reason to be wary of Manuel. He had once made an anonymous call to the police after a major bank robbery and implicated himself in the heist. He said he did it because he wanted to be involved in a major crime. Again, he was looking for attention, but had had nothing to do with the incident. Meanwhile, the case against William Watts was falling apart. Though the statements by Manuel were not taken very seriously, there was other evidence that was coming to light that threw doubt on the sightings of Watts on the road home the night of the murders. For example, his car had had a layer of frost on it the morning of the murder, which would not have been possible if it had been running for a four-hour round trip just hours before. Eventually, William Watt was released. Still, there was no real evidence against Manuel either, and he seemed to be setting things up to implicate Charles Tallis in the murders instead of himself. In desperation, and as the police seemed to be making no progress, William Watt went about investigating the crimes himself, He had a background in law enforcement, back before he opened his bakery. He began hanging around the pubs that had the criminal element as their patrons, and soon found himself being included in nights out with them. Through the connections he made there, and had made while he was in prison, he began to hear more and more that Manuel knew about what had happened to the Watts, and had been involved in the Martins' burglary. He even spoke to one criminal who admitted helping Manuel to get a gun prior to the crimes committed at Burnside, managed to get him to speak to the police about it. Eventually, by January 1957, one of the most senior police officers in Glasgow not only believed in Watts' total innocence, but that Manuel was guilty of the Watts murders and the murder of Anne Neeland. However, it was the Lanarkshire police that were handling the case, and they refused to believe that Manuel was responsible for the killings. They were adamant the Glasgow police were wrong. Consequently, the investigation stalled again, and in November of 1957, Manuel was coming to the end of his 18-month sentence. He requested a meeting with his solicitor, Dowdle, and once again brought up the Watts murder. Dowdle tried to convince Manuel to go to the police with his information, but he refused yet again. Manuel did, however, want to speak to Watts, and bizarrely, Dowdle arranged it. Both men would later give details of the meeting, but they would differ in their descriptions. Manuel said that Watt confessed to him. Watt said that Manuel told him that three people, including Charles Tallis, decided to break into one of the houses on the street that they thought had a large sum of money inside. They were going to shoot two people in the house and force the third to show them where the money was hidden. They mistook the houses and broke into the Watts instead. Watts said that Manuel had supplied the gun to Talas, and Talas had returned the gun to him after the botched raid. Watts was chilled to hear that Manuel knew specific details of the crime, and knew the layout of the house. Manuel also tried to claim that he had been responsible for getting Watt out of jail, and possessed special secret knowledge which would help solve the crime. Yet again we see Manuel's need to insert himself into the narrative, this time painting himself in a heroic and noble light. When Watt asked Manuel how this information was supposed to help him, Manuel responded that it might be that Charles Tallis would be found dead, having committed suicide with the gun he used to kill the Watts family. Manuel had thought through his endgame, and Watts realized he was willing to kill Tallis if that's what suited Manuel's plans. Manuel went on to describe how money was taken from the Watts house, and that there was no safe. It would appear that Manuel had missed the small safe that the family had in the kitchenette. He also showed Watt a picture of Anne Neeland and asked him if it was his daughter Vivian. By the time Manuel was released in late November 1957, the police in Lanarkshire were convinced of his guilt. In order to keep a close eye on his activities, they decided to recruit a spy. They turned to Joe Brannan, who had broken his foot in the attempted burglary months previously. Manuel seemed to trust him, as Joe hadn't given Manuel's name to the police at the time. Throughout December, the police gathered information that Manuel was selling stolen items of jewellery and had procured a gun. On Christmas Day, Manuel broke into the home of Reverend Alexander Houston and his wife, and stole some money and a camera. On Saturday, the 28th of December, Isabel Cook left her home to go to a dance with her boyfriend. She had gotten dressed up and went to catch a bus to meet him in town. Her boyfriend, Douglas Bryden, waited and waited for her, but she never turned up. The next day, her parents contacted the police, and items of her clothing began to be found scattered across the countryside. Her parents knew that it was unlikely that they would see their daughter again. New Year's Eve, Hogmanay in the manual house was a lively and festive affair. The family had gone out with some friends to a pub. Peter had to borrow money from his father to get in his round of drinks. They all then returned to the house and continued drinking. Teresa was the last to go to bed at around 4am. On New Year's Day at around 5am, a taxi driver saw another car driving erratically on the road without any lights on. He identified it as belonging to a Mr. Smart. Later that day, Brannon noticed that Manuel had way more money than he had had the day before. He was buying drinks left, right and centre and was treating himself and others to premium brands of cigarettes as opposed to his regular woodbines. This was in contrast to the day before when he had had to borrow money from his father. On the morning of the 2nd of January, the postman noticed that some of the curtains at the smart residence remained closed and the milk was still on the front step. Over the next few days, they would be open and closed at odd hours during the day and night. The morning of the 6th of January was the day that everyone was returning to work from their Christmas and New Year's holidays. But Peter Smart did not turn up to open the offices of the engineering firm that he worked for. He was usually quite punctual, so the staff were worried. He had started off as a joiner and had worked his way up to be the works manager. At 8.45 a.m. that morning, the secretary received a call to say that the Smart's car had been found abandoned in the Glasgow slums. Two employees made their way out to the Smart's home in Uddingston. Peter Smart had built the cozy bungalow a number of years before on the southeastern outskirts of Glasgow. When they arrived, they saw the milk bottles and the closed curtains and immediately knew something was wrong. They went to the local police station and then returned to the house to ask the neighbors if they knew what was going on. When they got back to the house, the police were already there waiting for them, with a number of neighbours. The area was on high alert already because of the recent disappearance of Isabel Cook. They forced open the back door and went in. The bodies of the Smart family were discovered. They had been killed in their beds. On the 14th of January, the police again arrived at the Manuel home and began yet another search. This time, they decided to bring Peter Manuel into the station while they searched and questioned his family separately. Gloves and a camera from Reverend Houston's house were found first. Samuel, Peter's father, said that the items were his, and so he was arrested for being in possession of or receiving stolen goods. He was removed from the house. So now the two most disruptive people had been taken from the premises. In the police station, Manuel told the officers that the money he had been spending had been given to him by a man named McKay. McKay was then tracked down and questioned about it, but he denied having given any money to Manuel. Manuel had quickly lost the support of the criminal element that he had spent his time with as roadblocks and searches were underway to gather evidence in the smart murders and the disappearance of Isabel Cook. McKay decided that it wasn't worth his while trying to cover for Manuel and had told the police all about how he had sourced a Beretta handgun for Manuel in mid-December. That night, Manuel was charged with the smart murders and the burglary at the Houston residence. He appeared before the court the next morning and was unsurprisingly refused bail. He asked to speak with the detective and had it arranged that his father would be released from jail and the charges would be dropped against him. In return for information Manuel said he had in relation to the Anne Neyland case, the Watts murders, Isabel Cook and the Smart Family murders. Manuel was informed that the only one with the authority to release his father was the Procurator General and for good measure they recautioned Manuel even though they knew the note that Manuel had written outlining his proposed deal was not enough to be used against him in a court of law as a confession. Despite all this, Manuel decided to start telling the police what had happened that night at the Smart household. He confessed to breaking into the house and shooting the three Smarts, taking the cash he found in the house and stealing their car. His parents were then brought in to see him, and after some time spent getting to the point, he confessed to killing Anne Neelands, the Watts, Isabel Cook, and the Smart family. He said that he would lead the police to where he had buried Isabel Cook's body. They brought Peter out to the fields nearer Brickworks, where, in near darkness, he showed the path that he had taken the night he killed Isabel and where he had ended up burying her body. She had been strangled. When he got back to the station, he made a full confession. He had met Anne Nealance as she was waiting on her boyfriend to turn up. When he didn't, Peter took her to a cafe and they had tea. He offered to walk her home, and on the way home he dragged her into a field. She tried to run away and fought him, but he hit her over the head with an iron bar. He then ran away. He didn't remember where he had thrown the iron bar. He recalled how he and two associates had been out burglarizing the night of the Watts family murders. He had been in another house earlier that night. He had scoped out the Watts house on his own. His two companions didn't like the look of the house, so they left Peter and he went in on his own. He first hit Vivian in the chin before going into the other room and shooting her parents. Then he heard Vivian moving around and went back to her room. She fought him, and he eventually got the better of her and shot her. He didn't steal anything from the Watts house that night. The next day, he threw the gun into the Clyde River. He described how he had just happened upon Isabel, who he had seen out walking on the 28th of December. He described how he dragged her across the fields and eventually strangled her with some of her own clothes. He had started to dig a hole for her grave, but was eventually disturbed by someone taking shortcuts across the field so he moved her to the burial site that he had brought the police to he scattered her clothes around the area to try and confuse people he then went on to tell how on new year's day he had left his house early and went to the smart house where he pocketed some money before shooting mr and mrs smart and their son he took money and the car from the house the gun he had gotten in december in a pub The police went out to try and retrieve some of the physical evidence that Manuel had described. They recovered a set of keys belonging to the Smarts, an angle iron that they thought matched the wounds on Anne Neeland, and two guns which had been thrown into the River Clyde. Manuel's legal team assembled and began to prepare for court. However, during his trial, it became clear that he was not happy with the representation he was getting. Maybe he could do a better job. Next time, on the Men's Rare Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Mens Rea Pod. Join in on the discussion at the Mens Rea Pod discussion group. Or you can send us in your questions, comments, or suggestions to mensreapod at gmail.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our newest sponsors on Patreon, Catherine Besler and Marina Hogan. Thank you guys. Your support means a lot and helps to defray some of the production costs of the podcast. If you'd like to sponsor the podcast, head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. I'd also like to thank some of our reviewers on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to Noelle from the Highland Life podcast, Variance, and Natifier for your encouragement. I really appreciate it. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.